Well, I have to confess, I, uh, I like to be liked by people. I like to be well thought of and, you know, everyone happy with me. But some of you will probably leave here today saying, you know, I used to like you. <laughs> I'm not so sure anymore. Because today we come to touch a subject that touches the nerves of a lot of people. There's no surer way to maybe make yourself unpopular, but to address the issues from Scripture regarding the roles of men and women, the distinctions of gender. It's an emotion-filled subject for a lot of people. It's charged politically, and we would say socially. It's distorted, it is abused, it's misunderstood, and it's downright offensive to some people. For that reason, many, many people avoid it. They don't address it, they never preach on it, they never lecture on it, or if they do, they do it in such a superficial way so as to only reinforce some of the misconceptions and misunderstandings that are out there. Or they may speak on it only in a way that accommodates itself to the broader public opinion, arriving at conclusions that are more emotionally based than they are biblically based. All of that is happening really against a backdrop where this debate and this tension and this sense of, uh, of angst about the roles of men and women has never ceased. It's been an ongoing struggle from the very beginning. You understand that from the fall of man, from the very creation, there was a battle of wills. There was a, a warning about an abuse of authority that would come because of the fall and because of the onslaught of sin in the world. And so we shouldn't imagine that somehow our time is any different, that the difficulties are any more severe or even any more subtle, that the pitfalls wouldn't be present with us or the pressures to conform to some lowly standard wouldn't also confront us. But today we want to cut through all of that if we can. We want to try to kind of... Uh, remove all of the fog and get past all of the emotion and, and go past all of the sway of public opinion and all the history of the debate and all that other stuff. And today we want to ask ourselves one simple question. What is God's design for the distinction between men and women? What did God mean in making us different? Why did God not make us all the same? What's his design for the roles and the distinctions and the purposes and the tasks that we have as male and female? Well, today we'll answer that by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage that is in front of us as we continue to preach through this book. It's one of the most important passages in all of Scripture for answering this same basic question, what is the glory of God's design, for understanding, I should say, the glory of God's design for men and women. The passage is known, of course, more for its broader context in the following verses where Paul goes on to speak to the issue of head coverings, what women ought to have covering their head in worship services. What many people fail to realize or just forget altogether is that all of that really is born or I should say framed by this comprehensive statement of God's design for men and women in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians 11. This is what he says. 
Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Those are Paul's words before he goes on to address this issue of head coverings. It's a brief and a powerful paradigm for the roles of men and women, and it presents what we call sometimes a complementarian view. That is to say, a view of God's design for men and women in which their roles complement one another. The object of the complementarian view would be sometimes called the egalitarian view. That is this idea of sort of absolute equality in the roles and the functions of men and women within the church, within marriage, or even within broader society. And Paul's statement here couldn't be more clear that in God's design, there are roles of authority. There are clear roles of headship And by implication, clear roles of submission designed by God in the roles of men and women. You remember most of this book has been written as a response to a letter that the Corinthians had actually written to Paul where they addressed a number of questions to him. Paul has been methodically making his way through answering every one of those questions. And perhaps this was one of them. Perhaps they wrote to him asking him, hey, we understand sort of uh, what you told us. We understand the sort of traditions that you gave us. But but we're really kind of confused regarding how women ought to conduct themselves within the worship of the church. How, how are they to function? What kinds of things are allowable for them? What kinds of things are, are permitted, particularly in public worship? Paul answers them by basically addressing these, these concerns that dictate God's design for women in the church. And he's going to outline for us three particular concerns that dictate exactly what God wants for men and women in the church. And the first one In verse 2 is the precedent of his own teaching, the precedent of Paul's teaching. He begins here in verse 2, I commend you because you remember me in everything, maintaining the traditions even as I delivered them to you. They probably had mentioned even in their letter how they were keeping these traditions. Paul commends them, but the one he has at the forefront of his mind, if it wasn't specific in their own letter, is this tradition regarding the role of women in the church. Now, don't stumble over that word tradition. Some people do. It is a word, uh, admittedly, that gets a bad rap, and partly because the Scripture, we might say, gives it a bad rap. And Christ himself would frequently confront the Pharisees because he says they exalted the traditions of their elders or the traditions of men on par with, or in some cases, even over the word of God. They would cling to man-made traditions more than the traditions of God or the teaching of God, the commandments of God. 
And even Paul himself would later on warn the Colossians about how the traditions of men can actually take you captive. That is to say that within any church, within any Christian group, there's always this tendency, this temptation to allow man-made traditions or the way that we've always done things to become the dictating factor in the way we do things moving forward. And people become captivated to simply traditions rather than to the Word of God. But this isn't the, uh, the fundamental meaning of the word. It isn't necessarily a, a, a reference to man-made traditions. The word is just paradosis. It simply means something that is given or passed on or passed down. And so occasionally the word is used to speak about the passing down of God's commandments. The passing down of sound doctrine and sound teaching. This is the way Paul uses it, for example, with the Thessalonians. He says, I commend you, 2 Thessalonians 2, my brothers, for standing firm and holding to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. The next chapter in that same book, he'll say, look, you need to mark the man who doesn't abide by the traditions you receive from us and avoid him. So in other words, Paul will sometimes use this simply in reference to the faithful passing passing down of sound teaching, sound doctrine. That's the sense that he has in mind here. You understand that as Paul writes this, this is a man who is no fan of personal opinion. He was no advocate for holding up the opinions and the ideas that came simply from men. He gave a resounding rebuke, you remember, in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians itself against people who would exalt the wisdom of man or the opinions of man alongside God. He over and over again talked about how God had thoroughly thwarted the uh, the wisdom of man. And he himself said that when he came to them, he decided to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. He decided to know nothing among them except what Christ had given. So that, he says, your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul is saying, look, I I, I didn't give you any of my own opinion. I didn't give you any of my own ideas. I didn't give you any of my own traditions, we might say. All I gave you was the pure, unadulterated word of God. So it's so important for us to understand that as Paul writes this, he as well as anyone understood the corrupting and the enslaving power of human traditions. So when Paul speaks about traditions here, don't mistake him for advocating any allegiance to his own personal preferences or the the passing fancy of men, which is, by the way, exactly what people accuse Paul of doing. They latch on to this verse in particular. And it's use of the word tradition to suggest that any notion of a biblical paradigm of men and women is just that, is is the tradition of men. And they would say that those traditions are themselves outdated, antiquated, or whatever it might be. As a matter of fact, they advocate a sort of ascending trajectory within Scripture, out of those traditions. Some people actually refer to it as a trajectory hermeneutic. And you'll hear that terminology if you read much in the literature about biblical manhood and womanhood. You'll hear them speaking about trajectories as if somehow there's this evolutionary ascendancy moving from degradation to elevation or from abuse to liberation. 
And look, while we all recognize that in the development of civilized, uh, the civilized world, the development within society, while we all recognize that certainly there has been in places improvement for the treatment of women and the, and the dignity of women, we should never suggest that because society may develop in a certain way, that somehow God's standards go through a process of development. That is to say, you can look at any period of time or any place in the world or society at any given time and measure it according to God's standard and speak about how it measures up more or less with God's word. But never should you take the development and evolution of society to mean that there is a development and evolution of what God accepts as holy and righteous. Societies at different times and in different places may, to different degrees, reflect God's perfect will, but God's will never changes. But this is exactly what Paul, what people accuse Paul of doing. They, they, they accuse him of having some standard that was somewhere in an evolutionary, developmental stage. And they suggest that God's standard for men and women has been on this sort of trajectory along with society, and that now we have arrived at some greater understanding of maybe the way God would have us function. Well, that certainly isn't what Paul is saying here, either intentionally or unintentionally, by his use of the word tradition. He isn't suggesting that this is some temporal standard on some sliding scale of social evolution. He is commending the Corinthian church here for holding to what he had taught them faithfully. And his expectation is that every faithful church would do just the same, that they wouldn't be rooted in the passing fancies of their society, but they would be rooted in that which was taught by him. And that which was taught by him itself was rooted in two timeless and unchanging realities. When Paul taught about the roles of men and women, he always taught out of these two timeless and unchanging realities. The first, of course, was the created order. Paul will say it even further on in chapter 11 here in verses 8 and 9. He'll go back again to the original creation and talk about how when God created man originally in the garden, he created them male and female. He created them with distinctions. He created with them with different roles. He'll talk about it in chapter 14. He'll talk about it in 1 Corinthians over and over again. When Paul comes to speak about the roles of men and women, he inevitably goes back to the created order. That's not the only thing, though. Secondly, and more importantly, the roles of men and women are rooted in the very nature of God. We are designed to reflect the image of God on the earth. And as a part of that image is this relationship of authority and submission within the very perfection of who God is, which is the second concern that Paul shares here And kind of dictates God's design for the roles of men and women. And that is the pattern of God's nature. This is really at the heart of everything Paul has to say here. What scripture teaches us about God himself. Paul says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. 
So he's teaching us out of the very relationship of God the Father and God the Son, what our relationship with one another ought to look like. Those who resist or oppose the biblical view of authority and submission will inevitably say that what is proposed in this complementarian view is some distortion, some some fallen picture, some marred picture, something less than God's original design, less than perfect. It's the manifestation of just pride and the flesh of mankind or, or pride and the flesh of men in general. But whatever it is, it establishes a relationship that could never be ideal. All that flies in the face of what Paul has to say here and what the rest of Scripture presents to us. The whole concept of authority and submission, Paul's telling us, is embedded in who God is. It is, in other words, the most ideal form of relationship because it's part of God's perfection. The Trinitarian nature of God Himself God exists in three separate persons, all combined in one single essence. And within that essence, there is variation. There's variation in personalities, but there's also variation in roles. There's variation in work. This is the Trinity. And the Bible is utterly clear about it. And from the very beginning, we're told about this nature of God, that He's one. Even in the very Old Testament word, the word Elohim, that that, uh, communicates to us about God. And even in the very opening chapter of the Bible, it tells us that God, in this plurality of persons, was involved in the creative work of the world. But even... Even more explicitly, this unity of God is communicated to Israel. To you it has been shown, Deuteronomy 4 says, that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. And in the very heart of Israel's religion was this this statement, this refrain from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And over and over and over again, we hear from the pages of Old Testament Scripture, like the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no other God. And so we're, we're told over and over again that there's one God, there's one God. To imagine that there are other gods or that there are multiple gods is blasphemous. It's sinful to even think that. New Testament continues to uphold this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from, for whom we exist. Paul tells Timothy... In 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. This is, the, this is the truth that's reflected throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. The, the Bible teaches us the Lord is one. There's only one. But at the same time, the Bible presents Christ as receiving worship and allowing himself to be called God. Thomas, you remember after the resurrection, finds Christ and bows down to worship him. 
and declares, my Lord and my God. Even the verse that I just referenced there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and when it talks about having one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, it goes on to say, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, through whom we exist. In other words, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 had referenced both God the Father and God the Son, placing them on par with one another, both as sources of creation. Neither of them had a creator. Both of them equally are are acknowledged as the source of all things. John's famous formulation of this is in his first verse of the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is clearly a parallel intended by John to the opening verses of Genesis when it talked about God in the beginning. And he goes on to tell us how how this God was there with God the Father. He was God himself, and this was the word that became flesh. And over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, the gospel writers make clear reference to verses in the Old Testament that were in their context speaking directly about God the Father, and they apply them to Jesus Christ. They use the Old Testament uh, word Yahweh and, and reference it to Christ himself over and over again. Even the Lord himself quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. They are clearly talking about the interaction between the personalities of the Trinity. And so the writer of Hebrews declares that Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. This is a message of scripture. God is absolutely one in essence. And yet within that essence, there exist three divine personalities. Distinct personas, distinct roles, distinct work. Now this is absolutely crucial. If you want to understand the roles of men and women But even beyond that, it's absolutely crucial if you want to understand salvation. It's it's fundamental to not only your salvation, but your whole faith. And it's so important that we emphasize that, that this is not an optional doctrine. It is in vogue today, particularly among emerging spirituality, to suggest that somehow we have all sort of mindlessly embraced the Trinity as just some some, uh, ancient third century doctrine dreamed up by a bunch of monks. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you understand anything about your salvation, you understand it must be rooted in a Trinitarian concept. Because you understand that in order for Christ to offer up a sacrifice for sins, which has any level of acceptability to God, it had to be a sacrifice which was worthy, which was perfect, which had no admixture of sin in itself. In other words, it couldn't be a stained or spotted sacrifice. It couldn't have its own need of redemption before it could offer redemption to others. That means that the only thing that Christ, the only thing that could be offered, I should say, for the redemption of mankind was nothing but God himself. So in order order for our redemption to even be possible, 
There had to be an offering up of one who was essentially God, but at the same time, there had to be distinct personalities within that Godhead. Because it wouldn't be possible for this forensic or legal transaction to take place unless there was one who could stand as the judge and one who could stand as the one under judgment. In other words, this trinity is embedded in the very concept of our salvation and our redemption. And within the interplay of those Trinitarian personalities is the glorious truth of the distinct roles that God plays in the eternal plan of salvation. And yet also the absolute necessity that everyone participating is none other than God himself. So we understand this is the essential nature of God. That he is one in essence and distinct in three persons. And it's within the beauty of all these distinctions that Paul wants you and me to understand the beauty of the distinctions that God made you and I according to. We understand that there is one who has authority and there's one who is in submission and that both are essential to accomplishing God's plan. Both are essential to the work of God. Both are essential to who he is in all of his perfection. Jesus continually demonstrated this for us, the beauty of this relationship, when he himself came and he says, for example, in John 4, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. You just think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying, look, this isn't some passing optional thing for me he equates it to the very sustaining nature of the things on which he fed he says i I, my survival my my very my very core of my survival is to do the will of the father he goes on in other places and not indicating any sort of grudging submission, but he says over and over again, I can do nothing of my own will as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says, my role is simply to carry out the judgment of the one who sent me, to carry out the will and the design of the one who sent me. He says in John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. He isn't communicating in any of these things, in any of these statements, that somehow there's been a corruption along the way, that somehow there's been some exploitation of him and his weakness and his role. Everything he's communicating is nothing but delight. To do exactly what God has asked him to do. And you understand that this wasn't some temporary accommodation to his flesh. This is who God is. It's built into the perfection of God. That there's authority and submission. In fact, this is something that will be there for all eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 makes it clear at the end when all things have been subjected to Christ... Then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So in other words, 
This is a part of God for eternity. So we embrace this. And yet at the same time, we acknowledge that this authority and submission never suggests that any person within the Trinity is any less valuable, any less glorious, any less important than the other. God exists in this economy of relationships, this economic trinity. And yet he exists with absolute equality of substance, of value in his status, of significance, of meaning, of worth, of wisdom, of intelligence, or whatever it might be. In other words, the difference between the members of the Godhead is, a, is one of function, not one of essence. The Son's role is different from the Father, but it is in no way inferior. And we would quickly acknowledge it's in no way less important. As a matter of fact, even in the work of redemption, we would say that the role of the Son is absolutely essential. To the accomplishing of God's plan. And it could not be accomplished without him. Now this is what Paul is trying to communicate to you and me. This is the analogy that he has here. When he speaks about the head of every man being Christ. The head of woman being man. The head of Christ being God. He's saying God has built into human relationship. Distinctions. Varying roles. That are intended to display his character. And this is true all over. Authority and submission is woven by God into the fabric of society. God establishes governments. He establishes authorities. He establishes kings and rulers and governors. He he establishes every judge, every police officer, every person, every supervisor who's over you, the scripture would teach you, has been established by God. Even in things as minimal, we might say, as master and slave relationships, we're taught that God has established those. And yet those people in authority are never presented as more righteous more important, more valued, more significant in God's eyes than the lowliest of the low. In fact, the Bible often will speak about the lowly and about the weak and about the poor as the ones whom God cherishes most, the ones who are most precious to God. Those not in power, not in authority, but those who are under that authority and those who are under that, that, that uh, oppression, injustice even in some cases. So far from thinking that those who are in positions of authority are somehow more worthy, more intelligent, more valuable, more cherished, we would even be more accurate to think the opposite. But the truth is, God has established roles for each one of us. We all operate in some level of authority and submission. Every one of us have to demonstrate submission at some level, to some group, to some person. And the scripture teaches us that in doing that, we reflect God. 
Paul establishes this with this sort of threefold criteria. The head of every man is Christ, whether you're willing to acknowledge it or not. Your head, your ruler, the one who is over you is Christ. You may think of this religion, you may think of all these Christian people around you as nothing but hocus pocus and a bunch of hoax and and smoke and mirrors and facades. You may imagine that you are the captain of your own fate, the judge of your own life. You may imagine that you are your own king. But the scripture tells you the exact opposite. No matter what you think, your head, your ruler, your judge is Christ. And you will acknowledge that in this life by confessing your sins, humbling yourself under God, and crying out to Him for forgiveness. Or you'll acknowledge that one day, bowing your knee before Him as your judge. As he condemns you for all eternity because of your hard-heartedness against his gospel. Scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord one day. God has given him that position. Not only that, Paul says the head of every woman is man. It's an unfortunate translation in the ESV. It says the head of a wife is her husband. The translators seem to be trying to force perhaps you into the idea that this whole discussion in chapter 11 is maybe just simply some discussion about relationships within the home and not in the church. That's certainly not the context. Uh, It is not the context of these verses and not the context of the whole of this doctrine. The words that Paul uses here aren't specific words for husband and wife. They're the general words for man and woman. Paul is saying that the head of Woman is man, not in a general sense. That's not saying that every woman is by by default must yield to and subject herself to the will of every single man who lives. But he's saying in 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 the in the sense that God has established a priority of position within the genders. He has established whether it's in the home or in the church that men take up roles of authority and that women take up roles of submission. That's what he's talking about. And then Paul caps this with the central truth that the head of Christ is God. This all directly reflects this inner trinitarian relationship. God the Father is the head in the sense of having authority over Christ. It's important that you understand what Paul's saying here, especially with this idea of headship, because there's a wave of publications that would want to propose that the concept of headship, the word in Greek is kephale. They suggest that that word actually means source. In some cases, like a fountain. And so they they would suggest that that's really what this means. It's talking about origin. It's just simply saying that in the chronological order, man was created first and then woman. And so this is simply a statement of chronological order, not a statement of functional order between the genders. But if you believe Scripture, that obviously is not the case here because when Paul says the head of Christ is God, he's not saying that the source of Christ is God. He's not suggesting that somehow God existed first and then Christ existed later. He's not suggesting that God is the creator of Christ. 
We already read earlier back in chapter 8 verse 6 that both God the Father and God the Son are presented as both preexistent, ultimate sources of creation. Neither of them was created. Both of them have always existed and they are equally credited as the source of all things that exist. So that obviously, whatever Paul means here by head, he can't mean source in the sense that contemporary writers propose. Paul's simply talking about the the economy of relationships within the members of the Trinity. God functions in a role of authority. Christ functions in a role of submission. And all of this is a part of the beauty and the perfection of who God is. Now it's within this beauty... That Christ himself is so exalted. The role he takes brings glory not only to God, but to himself. This is probably clearly seen in in John 17 when Christ goes to pray. And he's going to pray that evening to the Lord a number of things. At one point he'll say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. It is a prayer of submission. But he begins that prayer, John tells us, by lifting up his eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And all of that just describes the beauty of the way God has designed these roles to function. God has designed authority and submission so that Not so that I should say one person receives all the glory, but so that the two can exist in mutually edifying and mutually glorifying roles. That unfortunately is not the way that many have approached the issue. We are quick as anyone to acknowledge that so many people abuse and distort God's design of authority. Men twist this level of authority into a channel of self-serving and self-exaltation. Women revolt against it and seek to throw it off altogether or they grudgingly comply with it with bitterness and resentment and dishonor to their husbands or they misunderstand what it means and think that submission somehow is some some uh, uh, reason or some uh, excuse for them to abdicate their role as children of God and not to obey everything God has commanded them, that because somehow they're in a role of submission, they can be something less than fully accountable to everything God has commanded them to do, that their husband maybe would take responsibility for the sins in their life, for the sins in their home. None of that's true. None of that's played out in Scripture. All of that is a distortion of what the Scripture teaches about authority and submission. But listen, when two people understand the way that this functions within the Godhead, and when two people understand the way that that is to be reflected in the relationship of a man and a woman, the result is a beautiful symmetry of edification and glory. And more importantly, it's a, the result is the glory of God, which is really Paul's third concern here. The third concern that dictates for him the design for men and women is the pursuit of the glory of God. This is really what it's all about for Paul. 
He said it at the end of chapter 10. He said, look, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That was said within the context of our relationships within the church. How we interact with people who have differing preferences and differing issues of conscience. And that really carries forward as you come to chapter 11 and chapter 12 and chapter 13 and 14. Everything he has to say in those four chapters are all concerning how we honor God in the public worship of the church, how we honor God, not only in the roles of men and women, but how we honor God in the way we conduct ourselves at the Lord's table, how we honor God in the way that we conduct ourselves with spiritual gifts, how we show love to one another in 1 Corinthians 13, all the things we do in public worship, the way we sing, the way we worship, this whole section is about glorifying and honoring God. And what Paul's telling us here is that one of the ways that we honor God as the body of Christ is we reflect this distinction in the roles within the body of Christ between men and women. That we don't somehow assume that every role that's been given to men is a role that ought to be given to a woman, or we don't assume that everything that women are given to do or something that men should be given to do. That, in fact, is a recipe for blasphemy, similar to what Paul tells Titus when he instructs women in the home, he tells Titus to tell, uh, tell the women to be submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. Or he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that for them to not be submissive in their homes would be to give opportunity to the accuser to slander the church and slander God. And it's not just... Because the accuser has some great esteem for the word of God. The reason he's going to slander the church. And the reason that the word of God is going to be reviled. Is because when you revolt against the design of God within the genders. You're not, you're not achieving harmony. That might be the deception of the world. That might be the false promise that's given to you. That somehow the, the way to fulfillment, the way to happiness, the way to peace is to somehow seek this egalitarian view. What you're actually doing is you're promoting discord. By si- somehow trying to produce some uh, relationship between these genders that doesn't reflect God. That doesn't reflect his personhood. You're You're creating this this world in which there's constant friction, constant animosity. This belief that somehow the way to happiness is to always exercise your own will, to always get your own way, to always be totally equal in your voice. That's the false promise. That that is the way that you're to live. And you never get to exercise the beauty of submission. The demonstration of God. The beauty of servanthood. Of having a position of authority and constantly yielding it up in sacrifice to others. In other words, it doesn't glorify God. It doesn't reflect God. It doesn't put Him on display. But the scripture teaches that if it's in the home by a man and a woman living this way, they have one of the grandest ways to demonstrate to a watching world what the love of Christ for the church looks like in giving up himself 
and what the love of the church for Christ looks like. What the love of God for for His own Son looks like. This is what we have in the broader church. The opportunity within our distinct relationships and the way we conduct ourselves to reflect to a watching world the very nature of God, the beauty of His design, the majesty of His own character, and to bring glory to Him. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for the reminder, for the truth and the and the correction that your character brings to us. Lord, we see within you beauties of perfection that we strive for every day and fall short. But Lord, we never stop striving because there is no greater goal but to be like you. Lord, I pray that you would conform us first in our own hearts and then in our homes and in our church. I pray that you would conform us in every way to men and women whose hearts beat with your heart, who long to reflect you in the greatest of ways, who understand the joy and the delights and the blessing of the roles that you've given to us. I pray for men who understand the roles of authority and and the demands of sacrifice and laying down their lives for their wives, for their family, for their ministry. I pray for women who understand their complementary role to come alongside as helpmeets and to submit themselves under the men you've placed over them in authority. That they would do so gladly. That they would look upon the opportunity to be like Christ, who yielded his own will to you. And Lord, I pray that you would guard us all from sin in any of these matters. That what we present to a watching world would be a pure and spotless picture of you. But then, Lord, not only would we be bringing great blessing to ourselves, but great honor to your name. And men might know you and worship you as they ought. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.